0: Listeners and welcome to this week's episode of Reno Whites. My name is Connor McQuivey. I am your host. Thank you, as always, for joining me. Today's guest on the podcast is City Councilman Devin Reese. He is the at-large City Council member. We had a great conversation about all kinds of things. Talked about what it's like to be on the City Council, the challenges of running a campaign, some current issues around homelessness and development. We talked about Pride. Pride is coming up. June is Pride Month. Really great conversation. Fantastic to have Devin on the show, and I am so appreciative. Before we get into the interview today, a quick note. You might know that I host Trivia Nights for DJ Trivia here in town. I'm at multiple venues around town. And I'm really excited to be working with DJ Trivia and helping promote them on the show now. So I would invite all of you, if you have not gone to play DJ Trivia, to check it out. It's fun, it is free. I host at several venues around town. So if you want to see me in person, that's a good way to do it. Please check out DJ Trivia online at djtrivia.com for all of our locations, or follow DJ Trivia on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram. Every day we post the Clue of the Day, where you can get bonus points. We're also starting our league season, which is free to participate in. All you need to do is play at the same venue with the same team name, and you are automatically participating in a league that has a championship at the end of the season. So check it out. I hope that I will see you at one of my games. Feel free to shoot me an email if you have any questions. It's Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. And now, without any further ado, this week's guest... Devin Reese. Devin Reese, thank you so much for coming on Renoites. I am so excited to have you as a guest on the show. I think you're my my biggest guest so far. So it's uh, exciting to have one of our city councilmen.
1: Well, that's a very kind intro, but uh, I'm a pretty small player in the scope of the universe. So hopefully you'll have some uh, real guests at some
0: point in time. Eventually. my My big dream, I haven't shared this on the podcast, but if I continue to grow, I'm getting more and more listeners every week. And great guests all the time. My hope is that if I keep doing the show week after week, that at some point it'll be big enough that I can interview like some actually really big names or whoever. When you know we have a presidential candidates come here and stuff, and if I'm the guy in Reno to talk to, that would be really rad. So stuff like that would be really cool. But in the meantime, city councilman is you know a good start.
1: Well, and my guess is that given your heart and effort that you're putting into it. Uh, you'll get where you want to go.
0: I hope so. So I want to start by talking a little bit about what a city councilman does and doesn't do, because I think that there's this idea that the city council makes all the decisions for the city all the time, and you're the the go-to people for anything that's happening in Reno. But I don't know that that's actually in the, the scope of what a city council person does. Can you just tell me a little bit about what a city council person is, and what isn't it, and why do you do it?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question, especially for folks who are perhaps uh, interested in city stuffs, but they don't exactly know how we fit in. So I like to tell people that it's really driven by two things. One is our charter. So the city of Reno has a charter and that charter lays out expressly what the kinds of things that the city is responsible for. And so it includes things that you would you know think are typical like police and fire, uh, business licensing property and zoning related questions within the city of Reno. Uh, it also includes provision of sewer services and then it includes something like pretty pedantic, which is the provision and organization of a municipal band. And we don't do a very good job of that um, because I've never seen the municipal band, but um, those are really the things that the city is um, allowed to participate in by state law. Uh, I think one of your prior guests, Mike Houghton, had mentioned that we're a Dillon's rule state. And so the, the things that the city of Reno is allowed to do are the things which the state has told us we are allowed to do. In some states, uh, cities and counties have far greater powers, and they're essentially their own little kingdom. We have only the powers which are expressly given to us by the state of Nevada. So that's the sort of starting point, the Charter and then I think, as you can imagine, we are no longer a sleepy little town of 50 or 60,000. We're hurtling headlong towards 300,000 people. And when you have 300,000 people, you, um, you start to grow. And some growing pains are good and easy, and other growing pains are really painful and hard. So when you think about what we can do, you look at the charter. And when you think about what we, what we can't do, you're really talking about things like And this is a hot issue for us now, but you're talking about how do we provide care for our unsheltered population? Uh, What role do we have in mental health? Uh, These are big questions and important questions, but sometimes we are ill-equipped at the city to deal with them because we're not set up to deal with them, and we're not legally able to deal with them in some ways. So that's probably the biggest area. And of course, we get confused a lot because people want to know what my position is on education policy and CRT. These are things that, although interest me as a human being, uh, we don't really have a lot to do with them at the city council level. And so sometimes people are just, you know, they're fumbling for understanding what your role is in the broader sense, because we have a city, a county, a state, a federal government, right? Layers of different kinds of governments. We also have, uh, you know, Washoe County School District. We have Uh, different boards and commissions that deal with things like water policy. So we have Truckee Meadow Water Authority. We have the flood project. We have Western Regional Water. I mean, everyone seems to do their own piece of it. And we have some small role at times. But uh, oftentimes, some of the things that matter most to people, we don't have anything to do with. So we try to stay in our lane, or at least I do. And I think it's important that we focus on our course, and and what our job is vis-a-vis the people that put us into office to begin with.
0: Mm hmm. How much do you think because people are looking to you to answer those questions and people come to you and say, what is the city doing about this? What is the city doing about that? How much of your job is actually managing these things and making these decisions versus the the messaging and communication to people? Because I think people do see the city council as the go to for what's going on in town, whether or not you're able to control it. I think the messaging often comes from the city. So where do you see your role as um, you know the getting stuff done versus the communicating about what's going on and also your own views in that too because even if you don't have control over something you do have influence right
1: yeah for sure i, I don't want to under uh, sell or oversell what we can accomplish i think a good example i'll give you is during the pandemic i have people and continue to this day to have people who reach out to me to say you know what can you do to help me your constituent with navigating unemployment benefits And the answer is not a whole lot, but surprisingly, in some cases, quite a bit, because we are in a position of actual or apparent authority where we can sometimes make the call, right? Um, So I've had constituents who've reached out and said, hey, it's been six weeks. I can't get unemployment benefits. Can you help me? And so we find a way, right? We find a way to the right person who might be at the Department of Education, Training, Rehabilitation, and we have them. Elevate a constituents matter, right? So, in that way, um, we are in a position to use the power that we have to help people. And sometimes we don't communicate that well about it because your question really asked two parts both what could we do and what also how do we communicate about it. For my part, um, this job is a full time job. It's definitely more than 40 hours a week, uh, although it's intended, I suppose, uh, for some to be a a part-time job. Um, some of the council members, including myself, do have other professional vocations or occupations. Uh, I am a lawyer by profession, and so I continue to practice law, although just not as much. Um, some of the council members um, do not have any other outside employment, and this is their sole uh, responsibility. And so you just kind of balance what you can in the confines of the you know the hours that you have in front of you, and you communicate effectively as you can. For my part. I try to communicate as effectively as I can by you know, texting and Facebook and Twitter and trying to put out you know, some newsletters. I respond to all my constituent emails myself. Um, every council member kind of deals with their own communication policy their own way. We as council members also have access to you know, a comms team at the city of Reno, which is an outstanding group of folks who work very hard. We have what are called liaisons. Each of the council members is assigned to a liaison, and that liaison is supposed to help you interface with the public and, and meet the varying needs that people bring to you. So we have help. You know, It's not just me trying to do a thing, although for my part, you know, I am the one responding on Facebook. <laughs> I am the one who's sending text messages to you. I'm the one who's answering the phone. So uh, you do your best with what you can.
0: Yeah, I appreciate your responsiveness. I've noticed, especially on Facebook, you respond to comments. It's not just you'll post something and then people talk amongst themselves in the comments. You're there engaging in actual discussion with people, which I appreciate that that sense of accessibility.
1: Well, I appreciate that. Sometimes it's a double-edged sword. Obviously, I'm a person and I'd like to have some time to myself and my family and my husband, my kids. But, you know, people... People have a right to have access to you. You know, they put you into the position of power and trust, and you are making decisions that impact their lives. So when they reach out to you at you know five in the morning and want to ask a question, if I'm awake, I'm answering. You know,
0: mm-hmm. what made you decide to pursue city council and and local government in general? Why did you think that was a good venue and a way for you to make a difference? What was your hope for running for city council and and how's it going? Are you Is it what you expected it to be? Are you making the impacts that you wanted to? What's that experience been like?
1: Yeah, another good question. Very thoughtful um, for my part. Uh, My journey to political life probably began, I don't know, we'll say eight, nine, ten years ago. And basically what I observed is that the job I was doing, which was as a lawyer, as I said, a lot of the solutions became political. Right? I had clients who would come to me with a thing that you know, a dispute happening or whatever. And they would say, fix this for me. And I reached into the toolbox to figure out which tools I could use. And I realized pretty quickly that, you know, litigation, which was my background was not always the best solution for the kinds of things that my clients were bringing to me. And so the job became very political around me. So I started spending more time with other folks who were in varying levels of government, I'm also the general counsel for a number of small government entities. So I'm essentially the Carl Hall, but to other entities. Um, and so those clients sort of needed a different kind of skill set. And so the job was getting very political around me. And uh, I, as many people do, got sort of volunteered or volunteered to run for political office. Um, and so I ran unsuccessfully for the state Senate in 2016, and really learned a lot about myself and about being a, a, a person in the public eye. I was not um, elected in that uh, race, and so, but I, I sort of understood the impact that one could have if one was elected as a result of that. And so, I I did not run in 2018 for another office. There just wasn't anything that was the right fit for me. And then. Um, there was a vacancy on the city council in 2019 when then council member David Bobzine uh, went into the new uh, Sisolak administration in Carson. So he left the city council to take a full-time job in Carson where he continues to do good work in the area of energy policy and natural resources. So I put in my application. Uh, I think there were, I don't know, 150, 200 applicants, something like that. And They kind of winnowed down the number of folks that they're interested in meeting with. And then I interviewed in front of the community and then in front of the council. And then, uh, you know, just by the grace of God, I suppose, I, I was selected. So I took over and served the remaining 18 months or so on that term of office. And then I put in for the office in my own right and was elected in, well, I guess a year ago in 2020. Um, so that's the first part of the journey, like how I got there. There's probably more poetic ways to describe the, the journey, but that's kind of the nuts and bolts of it. For my part, you asked a second part of the question, though, about you know, kind of how I like it and, and, and it, what it's about. And it's been the absolute uh, joy of my, um, my adult life and, and professional uh, service. I, I view the job as public service it is certainly you are paid a salary, um, and it's a good salary. Um, For me, I had a career and a a job that was uh, paying a good salary, and I had to set aside the most of that in order to do this. So, you know, you have to view it as public service, and, and I do view it that way. And as a result, You know, there are days where there are things that are not very interesting about the job. You know, sometimes you're talking about sewer rates and where um, sewer, you know, how it impacts the community and talking about shit all day is not a very fun thing, right? Um, And so maybe I'm not as passionate about it, but there's a very important part about sewers and their capacity and how they drive the conversation about development. So you kind of peel back the layers of the parts that you are not as interested in, which for me is you know, where does shit go when you flush it down the toilet and you find the places that you're interested in. And so for me, I just try to find ways to do as much good for as many people as we can for as long as we can. And in those moments, you realize that you can really actually make a difference. Uh, The things that affect people's lives most directly are the things that are happening locally. Sometimes I feel very removed from the you know, the federal government or how Congress approaches a thing or even the president or the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, But, you know, every day I know about people's, you know, neighborhoods and potholes and the projects that they're interested in or opposed to. Uh, I think a lot about, you know, what I want the future to hold for our community. And I'm happy to play a small role in
0: it. Mm -hmm. What was the the campaigning experience like? Because that I know is or seems very frustrating or challenging to have a campaign experience where there's, you know, like mudslinging ads and it's local politics shouldn't be so dirty. But I feel like your campaign this last year was kind of gross. There was some bad ads and stuff that I thought was unfair. What's the experience like putting yourself not just in the public eye, but also making yourself kind of like a target of political opponents? How did that feel? and, And what's your take on the, the, experience of, of running and dealing with the, the campaign part? Or, and the plus sides too, like what's the enjoyable part of campaigning? I don't want it all to be negative. I'm sure that there's some enjoyable parts of that as well.
1: Yeah, I'm going to have to search my mind for those enjoyable parts. It's a little harder to come <laughs> to, you know, campaigning is at its core is fundamentally about how you connect with people. And I like people. I like hearing their stories. I like sharing my story. I like hearing what they're Uh, their issues are and and trying to listen very intently to what their hoped for solutions are. And I like trying to find a way forward for uh, people who might have differing views. Uh, Campaigning during a pandemic was particularly challenging because a lot of politics is very local and retail. And that involves you knocking on the door and saying, Hey, I'm Devin Reese and I'm running for city council. Tell me what you need me to know. And we couldn't do that, this campaign. We certainly, in the 2016 campaign, I put a lot of miles in and, and knocked a lot of doors. Now, this time out, it was uh, much more, you know, the, the focus was on, for me, I was a candidate who uh, relied heavily on texting platforms, and, and those texting platforms were uh, super uh, useful and I think are definitely part of, uh, you know, a future campaign that, involves technology and the use of it and, and a way to connect with people. Cause a lot of people don't want you knocking on their door. Right. Mm-hmm. So as for the negativity, uh, my particular race was negative. Um, I don't think it was negative by me. I, I didn't spend very much time thinking about or wondering about my opponent or his um, bad behavior. Uh, he's someone who I think Reno knows well and has uh, you know, on, four or five times now said they're not interested in that brand of politics. Uh, but it's hard because something you said is very resonates with me. You know, local politics, I, I hold a nonpartisan office, right? Uh, I am a proud and registered Democrat, but I'm also a Nevadan. I'm also uh, a Renoite, uh, like your podcast. And I think I hold very tight to that. I like to say, and I think people have heard me say it before, you know, potholes don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. Um, They just want to get filled. Um, People want to have parks and they want to have, you know, clean air and drinking water and they want to have shelter. All the other stuff that involves mudslinging is pretty ugly. Uh, I'm fortunate that, you know, perhaps my disposition as a human being is that I have a pretty thick skin so I don't get riled too much. Um, some of the things that happened in this particular campaign were, yeah, super gross. They attacked my family, uh, a sibling of mine who has some very difficult and challenging life issues that involve mental health issues and and drug addiction, and and all that stuff is is really unnecessary. You know, no one should have to go through that and. And that's very difficult. The other thing I'll say about it is campaigns are very expensive, no matter how you cut it, no matter where you are. And until we have campaign finance reform, which I'm a fan of, I would like to see publicly financed campaigns. You know, I have friends in other states who run for office who have some very strict campaign contribution limits, and they also have some very low limits where they're, you know, capped out. I think a friend of mine only could spend about a total of $10,000, right? Well, that's real easy to go out and raise $10,000, I think, from small donors. And if that's the maximum you can both raise and spend, you know, it means a lot of people who perhaps are locked out of political life can participate, and and rightfully so. Um, But we don't have that system here, and so campaigns are driven by the cost of billboards and signs and radio and technology and mailers, and all those things cost money. So in the end, you end up, um, you know, raising money from wherever you can. Sometimes that ends up being developers who are supporting you or unions. Uh, In the end, I I think I view everyone as a special interest, whether that's you, Connor, and you're donating $100 to a candidate or whether that's someone who's donating significantly more and you just do the best you can because um, there is a, a cost to it. In my particular race, too, I will say that uh, my opponent claimed to self-fundraise. And I I think that's a very dangerous thing, you know, the idea that you don't have to go out and meet with constituents and earn their sort of trust and their resources. And it it means that only wealthy people will be able to run for office. And I'm not down with that. I think that anyone should be able to run for office, uh, and we should make it more accessible. We shouldn't have barriers uh, related to that. So a lot of there to unpack, and I'm sorry for taking more time on this question than you probably wanted, but hopefully I've answered your question.
0: No, no, that was that was a great answer because I remember you told me once that you think everybody should run for office in some role just for the experience of, you know, contributing to your community and understanding what it looks like from the inside and, and, and contributing in that way. And I thought that was something pretty interesting. Do you still think that everyone should should run for an office of some kind?
1: Yeah, I, I do think that everyone who wants to, right, should run. I, I don't think anyone, it, elections and politics are not for every person or personality type. Um, I think if you're interested, uh, sometimes people say, well, it's not your turn or you need to wait till X person has done their stint and then you'll run when they're done. Um, and, and I don't believe any of that. I think anyone who has a heart to serve should be able to put their name in. Um, it's not that everyone is going to be successful and be elected. Uh, it's just that there is something very um, egalitarian and very, um, at its core, democratic in saying that everyone should have the opportunity to run. And, of course, there's all sorts of different levels, right? You can run for the Sun Valley GID. You can run for the Verdi TV Board, which is a weird one that we have here I think it was on the ballot last time I had to look at what that was um, but you know and and of course you know being an elected official is difficult and there are some mental health challenges that come with putting yourself out in the public eye and um, obviously I think people have to think of their health first uh, their family's health and privacy you know my children and my husband uh, obviously did not sign up to run uh, but they get you know, kind of dragged along for the ride, whether willingly or unwillingly. And everyone has to have that honest conversation when they're deciding to run. You know, what is your motivation for it? Uh, is your family supportive? It's very difficult to run if you uh, you don't have the support of your family. So everyone should run, everyone should serve, uh, but there are lots of ways to do it. Mm-hmm.
0: One thing that I know you're really interested in is debate. So you were part of the kind of debate clubs in your history and your family is all involved in debate. And that's something that's clearly very important to you is debate and discussion and the way that we communicate. Why is debate so important to you? What's your history with it? Um, talk a little bit about debate and why, why it matters.
1: Yeah, this might be the rest of the hour. Because <laughs> I could talk about it for a long time. So I was um, I'm the product of Washoe County school district. Uh, and as are my three children Uh, I showed up at high school as a kind of gangly, nerdy uh, kind of dude and showed up on the first day and was assigned to debate class. Probably uh, by choice, I, I thought I always wanted to be a lawyer and this would be a great way for me to become one. I didn't have a lot of role models growing up in terms of people who had experience with higher education or being lawyers. You know, I didn't come from a family of lawyers. But I kind of fundamentally knew or believed that debate might help me get to that place. So I showed up and my debate coach was Sue Vaughan, an English teacher of some repute at um, uh, McQueen High School. And I went on to have a very successful high school career, which I parlayed then into a scholarship to go to college and probably was the way that my family was af- able to afford to go to college. Uh, otherwise, I, I might not have had the opportunity, I think, to go to college. But So I got a scholarship and then debated through uh, college and and was very uh, fortunate in Nevada. I was you know, a state champion in a couple of different events, uh, a couple of different debate uh, type events. And then in college, I was also able to become a national champion in debate. And debate's a unique world. It it has its own subculture and people who do it are are very into it and uh, they speak their own language. Um, And then many years later, um, after uh, sort of taking that and parlaying the college experience into law school, where I got to do some different kinds of debate called mock trial and and court competitions that kind of thing uh when we when our children were about to hit high school i went to mcqueen high school where my children would end up going and said hey you know my first one is coming up here and like to know what you have for a debate program they said well we don't have one but could you start one for us and they were smart because that's often the right way to do it you know if they don't have something you know they ask you to volunteer to build it So we rebuilt the program at McQueen. Uh, My debate coach, Sue Vaughn, came out of retirement. She was still teaching there and was my children's first debate coach. And she is now since retired um, because she served, uh, you know, for a long time in the Washington School District, probably 30, 35 years. And so I was a volunteer. uh, So I was what I call the nights and weekend coach. I would work all day long and then I would go and spend three or four hours each evening at the high school trying to build a debate program. And so we quickly built that program in large part, of course, thanks to my own three children who became very passionate about it into a national powerhouse. And so we, uh, without a doubt, have had the most successful debate program in the state of Nevada that has ever existed. And, and our children then parlayed that into opportunities to go to college. So our oldest max is at UNLV uh, debates for them. Our middle uh, KJ is at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and debates for them. And uh, as retired, she's decided or they have decided rather that um, they wanted to be done with debate and do some other social things in life and, and, you know, enjoy the college experience. And then our son, who graduates uh, tomorrow from McQueen High School, uh, was a very competitive, successful high school debater. And he's going to the University of Southern California where he'll debate for the USC debate team. So for us, you know, in many ways, debate has been the passion of my lifetime. Uh, it certainly is a, uh, a way that I have appreciated the opportunity to serve. I think over the years, I, I tried to count it one time, I've coached somewhere in the neighborhood of about 700 students. And, you know, as, if I weren't a lawyer, I, I hope uh, by the grace of God, I would be a teacher. Uh, it's an, a noble profession and uh, I have certainly benefited in my lifetime from having been a debater and a public speaker. And, and of course I, I want everyone to be a debater and a public speaker. So I tell my friends who have kids who are like eight, nine, 10 years old, I'm like, Hey, I think that person, you know, your child is going to be a debater, you know? And they kind of look at you funny and they're wondering, well, what does that mean? You know, I thought they were going to be a baseball player I say, no, no, they're going to be a debater. We're going to figure it out. So I probably, um, I'm retiring now. I I actually have uh, told the school that I will not be coming back next year in part because my duties as a city council member have just become much larger. So I just don't have the time to dedicate to it along with the other stuff I'm doing in life, but probably never get too far away from it. You know, it's been, uh, it absolutely is a a core thing about who I am and, and being a coach has been another joy.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I don't have that much experience with debate, but my understanding of it is it's not just about winning an argument or making the best argument for something. It really feels to be about understanding all the different sides of an issue and learning how to discuss and present ideas in ways that really make sense. So for people who aren't involved in the debate world but want to have a more, you know, thorough or nuanced understanding of things. What's a good way for a typical person, you know, not everyone's going to join a debate club, for a typical person to kind of adopt some of that way of thinking that comes from the debate world?
1: Well, I think um, number one is we all ought to spend some time outside of our own echo chambers, right? Meaning that sometimes you have a view on a thing, but you haven't really seen it from the other side's view and you haven't unpacked all the issues that are involved in it. With debate, you have to be both uh, pro and con on any given issue. From round to round, in one issue, in one round of a debate round, you might have to uh, affirm a thing that you don't really agree with, but that's the topic that was given to you. And then in the very next round, you're saying the exact opposite thing that you said in the first round. And so in that regard, uh, switch sides is what we call that, switch side debate, um, we all ought to be able to do that. And, and I suppose the way to do that is to, is to build it based on research. At its core, debate is a research activity at which you later add a speaking component to it. But in order to be prepared to speak on it, you have to have researched it. And so I tell people, and, and of course, people come to, you know, the kind of space where they need those skills at different points in time in their life, and not everyone will be debater but everyone can go to a library or get online and think critically about a topic and also read a variety of source materials if you only read one version of the world and that's all you see it's going to be very difficult to have a very nuanced opinion about a thing so sometimes you got to read um, you know journals that would be considered left sometimes you got to read conserv- conservative journals sometimes you got to pick ones that are you know, particularly spin worthy. And you can find all sorts of uh, materials to support almost anything. And certainly sussing out which are suspect or which are not valid materials is a skill you learn through that process. Um, But really, you know, for a person who, like you said, maybe has not been a debater, I think it, it starts with research and being willing to research an issue so thoroughly that you understand the arguments both for and against the thing so that you can construct reasons why an argument is true or not, or you can, you know, acknowledge the other person may have a valid point while pivoting to say it is something different than you believe it. Right. I think um, I've listened to all of your podcasts that you've done so far and right. And you got really smart people who have lots of deeply held opinions on a thing. And what I observe about the folks you've had on the show is that they're they're willing to um, accept when they're right, and they're willing to acknowledge when they're wrong, and they're willing to do more research to dig on an issue. And I think that's important for all of us, especially because the world become very polarized and, and at times very hyper-partisan, uh, and, and that is of no help to any of us, especially when you're you know trying to keep a dr- democracy going in the right direction. I think all of that relates to how we interact with the information that we're processing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is one of my hopes for this podcast and just how I try to engage with people in general is that we live in this world that is hyper polarized and nuance seems to be something that's just gone out the window. Like everything is reduced to tweet length. Every argument is this absolute binary, like you're for something or you're against it. you're good or you're bad. And I hope that in doing longer conversations, even if I'm wrong about some things, even if I don't have the full picture, at least there's a little bit more space for more analysis of what's going on and a little more nuanced view and, and, you know, taking other perspectives I think is an important part. So I'm trying to do my, you know, (laughs) my part to contribute to a little bit more substantive conversation around some of the issues.
1: Well, and I appreciate that. I think one of the things too is, is we are all mindful of this concept that, you know, listening is one thing. Sometimes people say you're not listening. And the answer is I am listening, but we just didn't agree. Right. Right. Um, some people will say things to you and they want you to agree with them and, and that's not really listening. Listening is listening to a person's thoughts and ideas and acknowledging their um, sort of humanity in the exchange, even when we don't agree with the outcome, right? Um, some people will say, you know, as to, I'll give an example, as to a development, like you didn't listen to what the people were telling you. Well, it's not true. Um, I think I try very hard to listen to everyone. It doesn't mean that I'm not listening to you if we don't agree. And therein lies the rub. Some people equate listening with agreement, and and that's just not true. Um, and and of course, listening is, uh, you know, it's a verb, right? It's some active activity, uh, in my view, because you're you're trying to understand what a person's thought processes, sometimes you're trying to figure out their position relative to their lived experience, and you want to be responsive and thoughtful about the views that people have because they're often deeply held and and people are very passionate about it. But the hard part is when in an elected life, you've got to ultimately make a decision, and sometimes you're not going to make the decision that a person who has given you and borne their heart and soul to you about really wants you to make. And, and in that way, that's the difficulty, of course, of being an elected life. You can't please everybody all the time. Uh, you're trying to do your best with the information you have. And sometimes you're going to let people down. And sometimes people are not going to agree with the decisions you make. Uh, and hopefully people agree with the majority of the decisions you make. That's why they put you into office. Um, but it's not always that way. So you, you're right to make all those observations, I think. and And certainly I do think that A podcast like this is how you contribute positively to the conversations that are happening.
0: Yeah, that's what I hope to do. I think that the podcast format is good for that. And I'm just trying to do my best job as someone who, again, doesn't have a background in debate and I'm not a journalist and I'm not a reporter and any of those things. But I think that it's nice to think that a typical person can, if they want to, engage in you know substantive conversation around things that matter. Um, Let's talk about Pride. It's Pride Month. And I'm super excited that, the, you know, Northern Nevada Pride is coming back. So let's talk a little bit about Pride stuff. First thing I think is, why do you think that the representation and visibility and stuff matters? Like, r- we just painted the rainbow sidewalk by the Reno Arch. You know, Pride parades are the biggest, you know, visible sign. But there's also so much more in the media and, like, companies and, you know, it's visibility is major. Why do you think that's such an important key for especially, you know, young LGBTQ people, can you just talk a little bit about visibility of the LGBTQ community, both here in Reno and and just in general?
1: Yeah, this is an important topic to me. I'm, I'm the first openly gay elected uh, member of the city council. It means something to me because I'm a part of that history. Obviously, I'm standing on the shoulders of some people who've come before me, whether that's Harvey Milk or David Parks here in Nevada, and so I take very seriously that responsibility. And, and you've raised a good question about visibility. And I suppose it boils down to this adage that we say sometimes in council, which is if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, right? And, and for LGBTQ folks, they certainly have a, a voice that's deserving to be heard. Uh, they have a lived experience that's important to contribute to the conversation, Because at the end of the day, when you're in the throes of making policy and trying your very best to make policies that are appropriate for more people than just, um, you know, I will say the average Joe Q or Jane Q public, you want to have those diverse views. And so um, representation matters if you think about the ways in which policy choices are made. Obviously, I think that even just my being on the city council is a, an important statement about this community. And having been elected uh, now in my own right, it tells you that people uh, value and see you as a, as a person, that they're not going to tolerate hate towards any particular group. And as for young people, you know, my hope is that uh, young people looking out at the world will see themselves as having every opportunity that they want to accomplish so that a person who is you know perhaps struggling with their identity uh, and trying to figure out come to terms with their uh, sexuality they will say to themselves you know i am worthy and a valid person and i see examples of people who are living uh, kind of the life that I want to live, or that they're living happy and full and productive lives, and that they don't have to be ashamed of who they love and and how they love. And so, I, again, you said it right too about small things, right? Yeah, Oreos can put out a Gay Pride cookie, and we can celebrate that, and um, we can have uh, corporations who are acknowledging their employees. Uh, by putting them in parades and floats, and we can paint a sidewalk in Reno. But at the end of the day, all of that, I think, is a good thing because it contributes to a a greater sense of tolerance and acceptance and uh, a love for people and community. So it's been certainly uh, part of my platform as an elected is to increase the diverse representation Uh, of this community. And so it should be reflected in the fact that we all are, are different and in our differences, we can become stronger as a community and that the diversity that we seek will make us stronger, not only as a city, as an organization, as a region. Uh, I'll give you an example. When we unveiled the uh, pride uh, sidewalk under the arch, I guess about a week ago, uh, we were there and it just been painted and the public works people were coming off the street and we had a couple um, who came and said, can we take a picture with you? And I said, well, you don't really want a picture with me. You want a picture with the mayor. She was there. She was gracious enough to take a picture. So I took the picture and I said, well, where are you from? You know, is this home? They said, no, we're from uh, Austin, Texas. And we were just here and we saw the commotion. We thought, what was this? And so they wandered down and they, th- they said, well, we made the right choice to come to Reno, right? For a vacation because we appreciate that you acknowledge this important month and that you have welcomed us to this city with this beautiful art display. And so that is uh, kind of in small measure and just an anecdotal way of saying that representation matters, right? That who we are and who we um, love is, uh, is available to people to be seen and and be heard. And I think it's important part about, you know certainly what I want to communicate to people, and and I'm pretty open. You know, we we live very out loud on social media, um, and my story is pretty well known, I think, at this point. And and so you just, if you're an open book to people, uh, they'll accept you for who you are, I think, and and allow you to uh, do the things that you dream and hope
0: for. Yeah. There were a couple of questions from my friend Daniel for my Q&A episode last week that I didn't answer, but I will pass along to you because you might be a good person to answer these. He asked me if I remembered my first Pride that I went to, and I don't know that I really do, but I'm curious of your experience of attending Pride here in Reno or otherwise. And then he also asked how Reno's LGBTQ community and acceptance has changed over the years. And I was gone for most of my adult life, but you were here. So tell me about kind of early pride experiences and then what you've seen change in Reno over over the years in terms of LGBTQ acceptance.
1: Yeah, my first pride, I think, uh, is probably within the last, I want to say 10 years for sure. Um, And I went to pride in San Francisco, which is like the, you know, godmother and godfather of all pride. It's a big celebration. And You know, I I was in a city that I was not really particularly familiar with at the time. And I went to Pride. And there was a moment where I was just, I think, standing on Market Street uh, near the Castro and said to myself, you know, uh, I can do this. You know, I can be fully me. I can be uh, proud and and, uh, prideful of who I am and who I love and who my husband is. I think um, it mattered to me. And it was also just simply about, Uh, community and seeing and looking around and seeing other men and women and trans folks who were living their authentic self and, and understanding who uh, they were in relationship to one another. I I mean, I think a lot of times we're all like pinballs in a pinball machine, you know, we're bouncing off each other and bouncing off of careers and bouncing off of constraints. Uh, But at its core, we, we want to be loved and we want to be seen and all of those things are what comes from pride. Now, pride locally has a fairly long history, quite frankly. I mean, we have some history that dates back to even the gay rodeo is an example, I think, of being out and proud of who you are. And this is something that uh, existed in our community for a long time. It doesn't exist here locally anymore. But pride itself... Um, You know, we've had a couple of dueling pride groups uh, in Reno over the years, and and now we've kind of coalesced around one of them, and we'll celebrate this year in July. Some people ask me, you know, why do we have pride in July when June is like the national pride month? Well, you kind of have it when it's appropriate for community, and and our pride is in July because it's sort of tied to Art Town. And, you know, Las Vegas does their pride in October because it's better weather there, uh in October than it is in June. Um I've been to Pride in London, Paris, Barcelona. I mean, I've been very fortunate. And it's just, you know, it's awesome. It's a celebration. It's a, a party. It's an opportunity to, you know, live out loud and, and, and in the open and and not be fearful of who we are. Uh and so I, I think, you know, in in terms of my lifetime, I've lived here my whole life and was born and raised here. I think we're a very welcoming and diverse community. I I really have been nurtured and loved by this community my whole life. I wasn't always uh, truly authentic with who I was. So my story is a little different than some other folks. So I am, we'll call it a late in life gay. I came out when I was 30. And so some of those years that, you know, I might have otherwise been out enjoying pride a little bit more or a little bit more creatively, I was not out and proud uh, but in my adult life, uh, it's really been focused on, you know, just developing community, enjoying the diversity within the LGBTQ community too is, is pretty amazing to me. Parts of the community that I really didn't have a lot of experience with, I've come to learn to love. Uh, and so that whole rainbow is uh, is is awesome and, and certainly worthy of being celebrated.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I agree. One of the things that comes up a lot during pride month is criticism of like rainbow capitalism and performative allyship. And I think it sometimes gets oversimplified and things that are wildly different from each other get dumped in the same bucket. So you might have companies that are relatively actively anti-gay, contributing to anti-gay politicians, supporting anti-gay policies, but then pride month comes around and they have like a rainbow logo and they're saying, Oh yeah, we we're accepting, but really behind the scenes, they're not. So there's things like that, that are, I think a real problem, but they kind of get labeled as, okay, that's just performative allyship. And then there are things like the rainbow on the sidewalk in Reno, which is, I think clearly a good thing for everyone, but then that'll get dumped in performative allyship. And I think those different competing ideas of like, uh, you know, false allyship or just pretending to be supportive really diminish the Ability for some of these real actions that are inclusive and and make our city more welcoming, I don't want that bundled in with, you know, like a rainbow-painted missile from a military contract or whatever. Like, those are very different things. What's your take on the good versus bad type of allyship? Like, is there such thing as bad allyship? Is this rainbow capitalism a real problem? What's your your view on that? I know that's a little bit more kind of like a national political issue maybe a little hot button but what's your view on the the rainbow capitalism debate
1: yeah poor who is a uh, modern theorist and philosopher talks a lot about pink washing and so in that regard i'm sure that there are things where we can point to where some corporation we don't agree with raytheon you know uh has made their logo um you know a, a rainbow and, and no we're not entirely looking for that, but nor should we be dismissive of it. I think that when you're a Raytheon employee and you're gay or LGBT or trans, um, any of those parts of the flag, it is, I think, reassuring to see that your employer acknowledges your existence in in some way. And no, I don't think we should settle for that, but I also don't think that we should attack everything as being performative. Uh, Certainly, I'm a a gay man and had a, a significant role in making sure that we had a uh, a rainbow crosswalk that was uh, built uh, or or you know laid down and i i can't be a performative ally because i am gay and i'm not performing for anyone i'm just happy to have celebrated it with the city you know um and certainly sometimes i want to just say to folks you know, can't we enjoy nice things too, right? Yes, there are lots of things that we can do better, um, but they don't always have to be lumped in with the things that we do. I think we should celebrate the good things that we can do and we could uh, obviously disagree about some of the things that are more complex and what we're working towards solutions on. But to dismiss them, um, I think, is is not right either. And I will tell you in the response to the rainbow flag Uh, being painted on the crosswalk, you know, I've had an outpouring of text, emails, and sometimes they're, or I'll I'll give you another example, we had Drag Queen Story Hour about a year and a half ago, which was all the, you know, all over the media and created some drama. And, you know, when a parent of a five-year-old trans child reaches out to you and says, hey, thank you for sticking up for my family and for my child, um, you just have to say, okay, we're doing the right thing. Right. Or when you meet two people on the street who are like, Hey, we're um, trans and we're so very thankful that your city acknowledges that we exist. Right. Um, even if the acknowledgement is small or some people observe it to be performative, other people believe it to be of value and beautiful. And so you can't, you know, appease everyone all the time, as we said earlier. I think you look for the common uh, commonality, which is be motivated by kindness, be motivated by love. And if your decisions and the actions you take are motivated in that way, um, you'll, you know, you'll get the response, which is correct. Uh, So I'm not uh, a big fan of bopping everybody on the nose all the time. I think we should celebrate the good things we can do and we can fight for the things that we need to fight
0: for. Excellent. I think that's a perfect answer. I couldn't agree more. What's Pride going to be like this year? I'm excited it's back. We didn't have Pride last year because of pandemic, right? So uh, I've noticed at all of the events that are happening, people are excited to be out and about. I went to Food Truck Friday and it was an absolute zoo. I think people are going to be out in numbers, right? What do you predict for Pride 2021 in Reno?
1: Well, I predict it'll be hot. Um, That's the first thing. Uh, There's obviously going to be a parade I heard that the mayor may be doing roller skates and drag queens. So you didn't hear it from me, um, but that is what I did hear. So you might see uh, our mayor on roller skates, and, I, and like I said, there could be an armada of drag queens involved. Uh, but it'll be fun. Whatever it is, it's going to be fun, and it's going to be an opportunity to spend some time outside in Wingfield Park. Our center, which is the organization that's the parent now and, and runs Pride, as a fundraiser is really, they've done some incredible things and they have created an event that is, you know, obviously it is celebrating LGBTQ folks, but it's for everybody. You know, I go down there and there's folks who are straight, there are kids, there are old people. um, It's, you know, racially diverse. It is really an opportunity for people to just come out and and be happy. And uh, I know there's a lot of folks who walk down the street and pass out beads and say, happy pride. Um, those are kind of the things that I look forward to every year is there's musical acts, there's food vendors, there's people selling cool stuff. I don't know. It's going to be an exciting time because I do think you're right. People are ready to get um, back to a greater sense of normalcy and, and they missed out on it last year. So this year I imagine would be a, a big, uh, a big party.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm glad it's back. I do have a couple questions about kind of current political issues. Like I said, I'm not really a a news podcast and I don't like that to be the focus. But since I have your attention and can get your take on a couple things, I figure let's go for it. I did an episode you mentioned with Mike Van Houten from Downtown Makeover about development and all of these projects. And obviously the city council has some involvement in what happens and doesn't happen. Obviously you're not in complete control of those things, but it's part of what people look to you for is what do we want Reno to look like? How are we going to build? What is good development? What is bad development? My general take, as I talked with Mike about is I'm very pro density. I want walkable neighborhoods. I want public transit. I want multimodal transportation. I want bike infrastructure. I think those are all great things for Reno. We're seeing some of that type of development in town. We're also seeing more, you know, suburban development and these like larger scale entire neighborhoods out, you know, in the far reaches of Reno. What do you think we should be building in Reno? Where should we be building? And what is your involvement in in shaping how Reno grows?
1: Yeah, obviously an important question to all of us. And I think, as I said earlier, I've lived here my whole life. Reno is definitely changed from, you know, 70,000 people. It was when I was growing up here and we're heading towards, you know, 300,000 people now and, and we'll grow beyond that in my lifetime. I'm sure Reno is of course constrained by its physical geography. So we're inside of the great basin and a bunch of bowls that are contiguous to each other, the North valleys. So in some ways we are constrained by the land and just the buildable area, because you either have to build up, so going vertical, I guess you could go up along the mountains, which is not something I prefer or most people appreciate, or you grow out. Uh, all of the easy places, of course, have been built, right? There are no easy places left, in my opinion. So you're looking at areas that, you know, have some historical uh, being built prone to flooding. You're looking at areas that are interfacing with the wilderness environment that we're surrounded by. And you're looking at areas that are, you know, very dense already and and don't yet have the infrastructure to be able to support more growth. So you've got a plan for the future that you see. And, And my hope is as a city council member is that people accept that when, when projects come to us, by the time they come to the city council, uh, because not all projects do come to the city council, many projects are built without ever coming to the city council. And some projects that are dogs, for lack of a better word, never make it because they get killed off in the planning stages. They get killed off at the planning commission. So by the time they come to us, the projects are largely um, ones that, you know, have been vetted by all the right players and all the right planners And meet all the legal requirements for a thing to happen. So um, our role is narrow, but our role is important because we are trying to craft the future we want to see for ourselves in this community. So my hope is that we build quality projects. I I am certainly a fan of infill and denser uh, projects because I think they are less uh, taxing on our uh, Environment—they're less taxing on our resources because we already have sewers and you know infrastructure and police and fire service to them. So, for my part, I, I favored that kind of development. You know, I think people are critical at times because they are reluctant to um, to change. You know, when when they see the world as they want to see it and they believe that the world will stay that way, kind of for time immemorial. I'm the at-large council member, which means I represent the entire city, and so I don't focus as intensely on each ward, ward by ward development. I'm thinking about the bigger picture. How does it impact all of Reno? And so those are important um, parts of how I approach looking at the projects because sometimes if you're only thinking about what's happening in your ward or only listening to the folks in your ward, you lose sight of the fact that, you know, we have a housing crisis here. We have a crisis of infrastructure. We have some water constraints that are looming. So we've got to look at the big picture and we've got to have thoughtful and responsible growth. Those words become buzzwords because people apply them in all sorts of different ways. At the end of the day, you, know, you, you do everything you can with the information that's presented to you to look at the project, uh, who's building it, who are they hiring as you know, consultants, do those people have a good track record with you or a bad one? And you, you do the best you can within the legal constraints of what the law says your role is in it. Obviously, I'm a lawyer, so I think very critically about what the code says, what the zoning requirements are, what are the things that the law says can happen on a particular place. And those sometimes are my focus because my background is a lawyer.
0: Mm-hmm. The housing and development stuff also ties in with cost of living, which is directly related to the homelessness in Reno, which has become a very big issue in recent weeks and months and and years, really, but especially just very recently. I know that last week there were some protests and then there were talks with the mayor that I've heard described by both sides as being really productive What's the dynamic between the the city council and the homeless advocate community? And is there opportunity for partnerships and working together? I think I see kind of this um, combative stance a little bit, and I wonder if there's a way to shift that to more partnerships and working together. So do you think that's a possibility? And do you think that, that you and the city council are being fairly portrayed or represented in some of these conversations?
1: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there in your question. Um, I'll say a couple of things. Number one, um, we are a country that's built on protest. So protests are a a valuable and valid way of communicating frustration and of change. So the language of protest is something that I appreciate very much in terms of my belief that it is, at its core, a very democratic thing to engage in. And so when folks have a grievance and they are not having that grievance resolved in a more traditional route by, you know, a meeting or a hearing or whatever, and they feel like the only way for them to move forward as to their issue is to protest, I, I believe that's a valuable thing, quite frankly. And I believe that um, we should uh, honor and accept that those protests are a legitimate form of communication. So that's the first thing I'll say. Second is, as to our unsheltered population, it is complex, and, and everyone uses that word um, to describe it. It is certainly not something that's new. My entire lifetime, I have been involved in various ways in um, housing, uh, involved in food banks, and been involved in conversations about how do we honor our most vulnerable communities. And so for my part, I don't see it as a recent phenomenon. I see it as a a, a lifetime of understanding and working towards solutions. And sometimes that can be frustrating because when you get into government, you imagine that you will make all these monumental changes and they will happen immediately. And when you sort of bless and release a thing that it'll go out and happen. And, And what I've had to learn in the last couple of years is, you know, government is not really great at everything it does. In fact, there are some things that it does that it does very poorly. And sometimes government takes a lot longer than it should in terms of what we expect is reasonable in terms of timing or resource allocation or even just, you know, being thoughtful about an issue. And so I fundamentally believe that what we have to have is folks who come together and form coalitions to solve a thing. So that means the We'll call them the advocate community, working with the faith-based community, working with the private community, working with the city, who's working with the state and the county and the federal government. And all of these people have an important part to contribute. And, of course, we can't leave out folks with lived experience from that conversation. And oftentimes, um, they're the ones who are left out most quickly. And I think we've we've made efforts, and and I certainly make an effort to seek out people with lived experience because I I do not know me personally what it is like to be homeless in America or on the streets of Reno. And so I I hope to elevate their concerns by asking them what the concerns are. So we, we all have a role to play. I hope that the feeling is not antagonistic. I think I said earlier, sometimes when you're in a conversation with people, They think you're not listening because you did not ultimately come to agree with them. And that is, again, something that I continue to believe happens. Sometimes the folks in the advocate community will say many things to me, and I will um, take the information in, and and we won't agree on the solution. But at its core, what we are agreeing on is that people um, who are unsheltered and find themselves in a very difficult situation either because of. Um, past trauma, mental health issues, addiction, uh, you know human trafficking, a lot of things lead a person to becoming homeless. Uh, and at its core, I think everyone, including uh, the city council members, the advocates, uh, want to see people um, honored, that they want to see them um, housed and clothed and fed and had their basic needs met. And where we disagree sometimes is about how to get there. And so if we start from the sort of end point, which is the goal, and work backwards, I think we tend to find commonality. I was not at the meeting last week, uh, and there have been some meetings that have occurred since then, and I I think you've rightly described them as productive um, in as much as Dialogue and thoughtfulness towards uh, a goal and people communicating is far better than, you know, people ignoring each other or getting very siloed. And so we have a great deal of work ahead of us. Uh, I think, too, you probably know, but I'll share with your readers, the city of Reno is not the best place for folks who are being cared for in this way to be uh, cared for because we don't have the social services infrastructure that's needed to be successful. And so we are working with our region here, the county and the city of Sparks, to transition homeless services out of the city of Reno and to the county. And the county also has the financial wherewithal to uh, sort of decide how they want to pay for those services. So uh, remember, we talked at the very beginning of your show about the charter obligations of a city and their police and fire and parks and recreation, and the list is very short none of those include you know the provision of homeless services so what the city has been doing for the last i'll say 20 years is really standing in the gap in an area that they didn't have a lot of role or responsibility in but they've done it because they felt it was the right thing to do and we're not intending to just go away or disappear or you know pay money towards a thing and then wash our hands of it but we do believe that regionally we've got to attack uh, some of the causes of uh, being unsheltered and the wage inequality that occurs in the city and the lack of affordable housing regionally rather than, you know, here at the city of Reno as, you know, one entity. So again, lots of stuff there. We could have an entire, you know, 20-hour podcast about houselessness. and, um, But I think those are my thoughts kind of off the top of my head.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't want necessarily to do, a, you know, every episode about uh, the unhoused situation in Reno. I've done a couple episodes and obviously there's a lot more to talk about as well, but I'm glad that we were able to talk about that a little bit. I have a couple more questions around that. If you don't mind just short ones. Um, I know the safe camp is opening this week, which I'm excited about. I think the safe camping is a huge part of the solution. So I'm glad that that is going to be up and running, but it's limited on space. So can you kind of give us an idea of what's next? So we have the cares campus has opened. It has a lot of capacity. The safe camp is opening. That has some capacity. But we're going to run into a situation of things being full again. So what's the kind of short to medium term of of next steps once we're running into capacity issues again?
1: Yeah, the Nevada CARES campus has um, a bunch of different, we'll call it phases or prongs. Obviously, the first one and the most pressing one was a, a shelter, which was sufficient size to handle the capacity of folks who need Emergency temporary shelter. It's not intended to be a long-term solution. Um, At the time that was being built, we really asked those with lived experience why they were unwilling to go to a shelter, and some of them basically said, we prefer camping. And what we looked at is uh, models around the country where people were, uh, the barriers to going to a a shelter to seek the kind of services that you could receive there included things like, well, they can't let me have our pets there, and I prefer to be outdoors, or I feel safer outside, and I don't want to be indoors. So um, pretty quickly, they decided that we would try a pilot program, and really the camping element of it should be viewed as that. It is a test balloon, right? A trial run at whether or not we want to, as a community, have safe camping. Now, I am a person who has been advocating it for the entire time I've been on council, and I think it is a necessary component and a critical component of meeting the unique needs of different subpopulations within the unsheltered population. So you're right. I think it has 44 uh, individual slots. They start opening tomorrow. I talked with the Karma Box project folks, Grant Denton, who you had on your show I thought his episode was brilliant, by the way, great guy, um, but it's too small, right? But again, it is a test run at it, so it's it's trying to see, can we do this, and how will we do it well, so that if it is successful, that we might consider expanding it. We might consider having more of them differently located, uh, so that You know, sometimes some folks do not interact well with other folks within a population. So we don't want to put them all at the same place and expose them to each other in such a way that is not successful for them to get into their individual journeys, right? Um, And so I'm a person who believes that we can have safe camping. It has to be safe for the residents. It has to be a place where they can call home, that we ought to have more of them. Certainly 44 spots or slots or campground sites is too small. I'm also someone who says we should have safe parking we should w- where people could live out of their cars for a time being and, and try to get into services that would allow them to come out of their car. Uh, we should have RV areas where people can stay without the threat of you know, being removed or, or legal action. Uh, ultimately, the goal of all of these things is to find solutions for people to get into permanent supportive housing. The third phase of the Nevada CARES campus really addresses that uh, the project, uh, I think, total was about $16 million, and $5 million of that was a collaborative effort by the Reno Housing Authority, which bought the adjacent parcel, which is five acres, and on which they will build somewhere in the range of 400 to 500 apartment-style homes. And so that is phase three, and they're currently out trying to fundraise to make that a, a practical reality. But eventually, on that campus, we will see permanent supportive housing. I would say within the next three to five years. And and that will add housing stock there so that a person can come into as a low barrier entry shelter into the shelter and they can cycle out of there as quickly as possible into other forms of housing, whether that's the village on Sage Street, which is dormitory style housing, Hopes Village, which are small, tiny homes, which have some central kitchen opportunities or a permanent housing complex, which will be down there, which will be run by Reno Housing Authority.
0: Awesome. I'm glad to hear that there's a plan and that the idea is to continue to add capacity. As Grant talked about, using the CARES campus as a launch pad to stable supportive housing, long-term housing. So I'm glad to hear that that that's the plan. One last question on the unhoused thing. This is just something that's come up in the last day or two, is I guess there's a planning commission meeting or something like that happening today. And there's concern about uh, criminalization of feeding the unhoused community. I'm not sure what the what the actual rule is right now, and I don't know what the intent is in the future. It's very concerning for a lot of people. I understand that we want to make sure we have centralized services, things like that, but the idea of criminalizing feeding the homeless is really a, a big issue. And there's a couple of organizations that do this direct outreach who are kind of raising the alarm What's the reality of that situation? Do you know what's going on with it? What is your view on it? What should people think about what's happening around these direct aid actions and the city's approach to them?
1: Yeah, for my part, I will just say uh, first and foremost, I have not spent the amount of time I would need to spend to give you a fully formed opinion. Things go to the planning commission largely at times because they're staff driven and they start as a staff issue. Here, the idea was that they had to revise some portion of Title 18 because as the crow flies, you cannot have the provision of food services within 600 feet of residential. And if you go across the freeway from where the CARES campus, you have residential. So currently, the CARES campus is a non-conforming use to that area, right? And so Title 18 had to be opened up is the word. And that provision has to be revised in order to make the thing that we are doing there a conforming use so that folks who live, in this case, across the freeway, don't have a legitimate beef about providing services there in the food services capacity. So that's the first thing. That that is the absolute core part of why Title 18 is being opened up. Now, as to mutual aid groups or Puff Puff Pass the Love, Burrito Project, sandwiches on sunday you know there's a number of different groups that have had a a history of providing healthy alternatives and meals to folks in need and we should be encouraging that of course Um, we want to make sure that human beings who want to help other human beings can continue to help those human beings so i don't know beyond that there there was no effort on the city's part to target uh, any organizations or groups or, or run them out of town so certainly no effort to criminalize, as you use the word, those efforts. You know, our, our entire society has an element of it that's based on charitable works, right? And so if people want to make burritos and put them in banana husk and pass them out, uh, that's awesome, and we should continue to do that. So I'll be interested to see what the conversation is about. It's not something that is, you know, I have, again, fully studied I'll just say that I appreciate the work that groups like Puff Puff Pass the Love and the Burrito Project are doing. And uh, they'll have my support as we move forward. uh, And we'll figure out what we need to do to make sure they can continue to be successful.
0: That's great to hear. Yeah. By the time this airs next week, we're recording this on Wednesday, the 16th. And I know that meeting is today. So things may have changed in the next week or so by the time this episode comes out. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. That your view is supportive of this kind of direct outreach, because I think it's an important piece of the puzzle as well. So let's shift to the future of Reno, exciting things in Reno. What are you looking forward to as we're coming out of COVID? Our economy is, I'm hopeful, looking to bounce back. I think we've weathered it relatively well. I mean, some businesses have gone out over the last year, but tourism hopefully is coming back a little bit. Events are doing well. What's your optimistic view of Reno in 2021?
1: Yeah, I am an optimistic human being by nature, so I'm always seeing the glasses half full. I think the future of Reno is very bright. We we've continued to diversify our economy. Uh, my hope is that as we diversify the economy, that we don't leave people behind, which means wages need to increase, and you know support for trade and labor unions and apprenticeship programs needs to be there. But as a community, um, you know we're going to continue to bump along and develop. At a, a certain pace, some people will say it's too fast, some people will say it's too slow. Uh, I like to think that we're trying to measure it just right. Uh, we are a you know a university in college town, and where the university goes, I think we tend to be successful in uh, working with them. So I'm excited to see how the university rebounds through COVID. Uh, obviously, our small businesses are um, you know they've had a very challenging year and a half. Uh, I think many of them are climbing out of it, but there are certainly going to be folks who uh, have also been left behind in that process. So I'm hopeful that as we look forward to the remainder of 2021, that really we're focusing on people, uh, small businesses, the university, uh, growing our, you know, parks and recreation programs. And of course, as you said earlier, addressing the needs of our unsheltered population. So we've got a lot of work to do and, and every day you just, get up with some sense of result to doing the work and to making sure that the diversity of this community is reflected in the policy choices we make. And and hopefully, um, while everyone won't agree with you all the time, you, you hope to do the best you can for as many folks as you can for as long as you can.
0: Yeah. And last thing I got for you, a lot of people are moving to Reno. So Reno is growing because people are coming here from out of state, from other places around the country. What's your message to Reno newbies? What do you you want the people who are moving to Reno to know about Reno? What's a good way to be a part of the community? If a lot of people who listen to this podcast have gotten messages, they're saying, oh, I just moved to Reno and I found your podcast. So for folks that are new in town, what's the message from Devin Reese?
1: Yeah, well, welcome. First of all and foremost, we're happy to have you. Uh, It is an incredibly gracious community where I think people can be successful and happy and healthy, Uh, enjoy uh, you know the beautiful, abundant nature and enjoy all that this community has to offer by getting involved. Right? Find your people, find your group, find your uh, you know your coffee shop, and 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 find the things that make you happy. Uh, We've got. You know, there's a lot to be unpacked with Reno. It's kind of like an onion, lots of layers. There's some gritty old parts. There's some uh, hip new parts. There's the confluence of where those things meet. And I think Reno does offer something for everyone. Uh, But at its core, what it offers is, I think, a a gracious group of human beings who are committed to uh, growing and and moving together and hoping that we build a better future for the next generations.
0: Excellent. What did we miss? Anything else that we didn't talk about today that you want to chat about or or bring up while we have a couple minutes?
1: Well, I mean, I I think a couple of things we uh, could spend time talking about are, you know, parks and recreation. Obviously, I'm very proud of the city's commitment to uh, growing its parks and recreation department back to where it was, you know, prior to 2007, eight, nine. Uh, We've made commitments to expand our park opportunities We have finally, after 20-plus long years, agreed to fully fund the Moana Pool Project, which is a very exciting thing. Uh, We just uh, committed a 30-year agreement with the folks out at Rosewood Golf Course to create a nature preserve and study area. And so this council very much values Uh, recreation and parks and the natural beauty of this community. So uh, that's something I think that we should be celebrating and be happy for. Uh, So that's sort of an important part of where I think we're headed, which is to really grow and and honor our park resources. So that's a cool thing. Let's see, what else could we talk about? We could talk about, um, you know, Reno I think it's becoming a, a great incubator for entrepreneurship and has been for many years uh, a place for arts and artists to thrive. And in some small ways, those things are starting to merge, right? When you start to look at the growth of this community and see uh, folks, as you said, they're moving here. And the reason why they're moving here is because we got something special, right? And we do some cool things here and things that you can't do other places. So I think people will continue to enjoy art in all its rich beauty whether that's murals, whether that's Art Town, whether that's uh, some of the great uh, theater companies we have here, uh, there is really something for everyone in that regard, and and, and some of that is is being born out into business opportunities. So, look for Reno to continue to be a hub of uh, entrepreneurial spirit, you know, angel investors, and when those things start to line up with things like art and technology. I think special things are on the rise and on the horizon for us.
0: Excellent. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Devin. It is always so great to talk to you. I really appreciate your ability to explain what you're about and what you care about and why Reno is so important in a way that that really resonates with me. And I always enjoy talking to you and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast.
1: Well, thanks for having me. Uh, It's been a privilege and I've really enjoyed getting to know you through your podcast because I think it's a a great way to know about uh, what a person is thinking about, what they value. And you've had some great guests, so I'm happy to be a part of that list. And I know that uh, at some point in time, you'll have all the big ones on here.
0: Hopefully. We'll see how it goes. Thanks again, Devin. Be well. Listeners, thank you again for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites. An extra special thanks to Devin, my guest this week. Thank you so much for coming on the show. If you enjoyed this episode or any other, please do me a favor and share it. Let people know about the podcast. I don't do a lot of advertising and promotion. So the way that people find out about this show is from the people that they know. So feel free to share this episode. Let people know about the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you will keep on tuning in. That's all I got for you this week. See you next time.